Today I welcome Chris Ramsey, Headmaster of the Whitgift School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss community partnerships, why single-sex education still has its place, recruiting a diverse student and teacher body, plus why bursaries are so important to the independent sector. I'd like to talk about independent schools giving back. The sector can get quite a bit of bashing from the national press. Why is that? There's probably a very obvious reason. I mean, we are, our pupils are very fortunate. Independent schools clearly have more resources. They are, on the one hand, I think the UK independent education is a fantastic product, if you want to put it that way. And it is unfair, isn't it? I mean, that, that's not the experience that most school kids have. And when you can see that gap between what's available in most parts of the maintained sector compared to what's available in the independent sector, you know, it's very hard. And I think that it was quite interesting that the reports of what's happening in Portugal, where the government, if I've understood this correctly, are even preventing independent schools from doing any online teaching on the basis that not everybody can have it. That's a kind of extreme view, which, you know, I wouldn't subscribe to obviously myself. But from that comes the feeling of unfairness and privilege and you know, it's definitely the case that we who have that should be finding ways of sharing them more. In a sense, there's inevitability about what you call the bashing, if you like. Yeah, and it's easy to bash privilege because it's seen as such a big divide between people that can afford it, they're getting everything, and, and you can buy happiness, you can buy success, you can buy education, you can buy it. But part of obviously the role of the independent sector too, and obviously your associations led by the ISC, is to champion the causes and, and the great things that schools do. What should schools do more of private schools to try and break this myth there's no one answer i think you should always ask the community or or engage with the local community and see what they need and one of the mistakes that schools sometimes made is they've gone out to i don't know local primary schools or whatever and they've said you know here is our drama or here is our sport and it's much better to find out what are the needs that the community has that you might be able to answer and i think a really good illustration of that is the fact that independent schools have stopped talking about outreach and started talking about partnerships. And uh, we appointed uh, somebody to lead on this a year or so ago. And the first thing he said was, please don't call me director of outreach, implies, you know, the country squire reaching out to the poor people in the village. That's a kind of with all those overtones yeah. of, you know, bringing them a Christmas hamper or something. Partnership is getting alongside local schools or the local community and saying, you know, what do you need and can we help? So we set up a summer school here. The local primary schools were saying, actually, what would be really helpful is if you could just keep these kids going. Um, and uh, we're very lucky in that the Whitgift Foundation has old people's care homes as part of its charitable portfolio. So there's not one answer to what we should do more of. What we should do more of is whatever the particular local community would like us to do more of. Yeah, because you do have a say, it, it's, you, you have the resourcing and it's not it's not financial resourcing, but it's, it's having the talent to maybe it's the facilities. It's the, there's a lot of resources that are available. And I think you're absolutely right. Matching needs to how you can service your local community is much more important than, as you say, it's, it's that sense of you know, being charitable, but people don't like to feel like you're being charitable. And I think language is important. I think independent schools often get it wrong with language. They feel you're stuck in you know, centuries worth of tradition. And sometimes, yeah, like simple word like outreach, completely be taken the wrong way. And when you start to work partnerships, there's, there's equal footing. You, know, you just have a very different educational setup than, say, the state sector. 
And, and obviously, you know, going back to that word partnership, you know, we're, we're getting a lot out of this too. And that's fine. You know, it's one of the things that certainly our parent body, parental attitudes have changed even in these last nine months. And maybe, you know, we've seen that a bit in society, haven't we, that, that people are thinking more about how can my son help other people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, are state school partnerships important or, or are they just headline grabbers? The best ones are where, you know, schools work together, perhaps on a particular project, or over a period of time. And I have to say, you know, we're, we're relatively new in this long-standing primary school partnership, but in terms of actually joining with other schools for a particular purpose, um, I think that's where it's it's most valuable. Concert or whether it's, you know, joint production or joint venture of any kind, having something that you're both going to work on and gain from. And this leads on to the next question really about sort of charitable status. You know, on, on one hand, you are a huge revenue generating organisation offering an education to a lot of privileged people. You know, are schools just paying lip service and doing the bare minimum to justify this charitable status? And what is Whitgift doing? I've always felt the charitable status argument is a red herring. I mean, you should not do certain activities in order to jump through certain hoops. You know, you shouldn't give to charity so that you can put it on your tax return. You might put it on your tax return, but that's not why you do it. And and so I, I think rather than seeing this as something we have to do to justify our charitable status, we should be doing these things because they're the right things to do, if we believe they are, and we certainly at Whitgift do. And don't forget that for a lot of schools, so, so the independent school sector in the UK, by and large, there are the kind of ancient schools of which, you know, Whitgift is one, where the foundation was a charitable foundation. A Whitgift school was founded in order to give education to poor boys in the village of Croydon, if you can believe that. And, you know, schools like Winchester and, and Eton and so on and so forth were part of that. The ones that were founded in the 19th century were more overtly for people who could pay the fees. But certainly those which have a charitable foundation, we should be being true to our roots rather than, you know, justifying a particular legal status. I've got a great connection with Croydon, by the way. I was born in Croydon in May Day. My father went to John Ruskin a long, long time ago. My grandparents were there until very, very recently. So yeah, I have a strong connection and affinity with Croydon. And I know Whitgift. I think I played hockey against Whitgift. Um, Who were you playing for, may I ask? Um, <laughs> RGS in High Wycombe. So yeah, we, we, we were a good hockey school. Um, let, let's talk about boys' education or single-sex education. Yeah. I speak to a lot, and there seems to be a lot of girls-only schools. There were so many. Why aren't there as many single-sex boys' schools? Yeah, it's interesting one, that one, isn't it? Um, and you have, as you're indicating, you've got things like the Girls' Day School Trust. You know, you've got groups of girls' schools. I think it's partly historic. A lot of traditional boys' independent schools in the sort of 1980s, early 1990s, you know, this was also quite a good educational thing for some of them to do to whereas the girls only sector has been much more protective of its brand the girls only school sector the gdst and so on and so forth they felt that there's a bit more of a mission to educate girls girls came later historically to education i think that's probably why and you're right there are relatively few all boys schools you know, you're not leading Whitgift because you, you utterly believe in your core that actually single-sex education is the best way. You are just leading the school because you believe in their mission. Yeah, I mean, I, I would sort of temper what you said by saying I have run a co-ed school. So it's obviously not that I, I would never think that was a great kind of school. And, and, and certainly, you know, my previous school, you know, I was very proud of and I thought we did very, very well. You know, my view is there is definitely a place for boys-only education and girls-only education. I'd be incredibly sad if co-education was 
the only thing you're allowed to do. I can't, can't think how that would come about. But, you know, there are people who say, well, all schools should be co-educational. I mean, your point about you know, economic necessity, we've seen a lot more boys' schools turn into co-educational schools because they don't seem to have the traction that the girls-only education has. Is this because, you know, you read a lot that girls work better with girls. You know, if you brought boys in, they get distracted, but actually boys work better when you bring the girls in because actually it calms them down and they focus. Yeah, I mean, first of all, we mustn't stereotype and we mustn't yeah. overgeneralise. I think there are some really significant benefits for boys in a boys-only education, all other things being equal. One of them is that, you know, boys are able to be boys without being sort of self-conscious about it. In my previous school, co-educational school, going from strength to strength, and, and I'm delighted it is, but it's certainly true that they come a bit self-conscious and they almost don't behave naturally. I mean, I would say boys are able to be boys a little bit. Bit more. And actually, interestingly, they're able to be non-stereotyped, if I can put it that way. My previous school, which is co-educational, so we did all the things you would expect a school to do, so musicals, you know, art and drama. And, and interestingly, we could never persuade the boys to do the dance or, you know, join the jewellery making club because they saw that as being the things the girls did. Whereas at Wigif, we have boy ballet, uh, you know, we have boys at the jewellery making club. And in a sense, they're doing it because somebody's got to dance in our musicals. So it becomes a little bit more liberating in a way. But the other thing is warming to my theme a little bit, teaching. I started off my career teaching in an all-boys school. Boys are great fun to teach, very competitive. They respond very well to games. They respond very well if you say, we're just going to do something completely different today. Girls prefer to know what's happening, to know what's going to come next. So if you teach in a co-ed school, everything becomes moderated. At its worst, can become a bit monochrome. Whereas in a boys' school, you can be wacky occasionally and boys love that final point i would make i don't think it's easy growing up as a boy in 2021 and i would say that been the case increasingly for the last few years for all the obvious reasons me too and, and so on and so forth and i think the whole male identity is a real challenge and I think in an all-boys school, you could have really open conversations in tutor groups and assemblies and so on and so forth about, you know, what do we want to be as men without thinking that we've got to moderate that because we're a co-educational. And I know you can have those conversations at co-ed school too. I completely agree. Um, and particularly around your last point, I think there's a missing piece here that's, that's often overshadowed because of the Me Too and everything else. And they're very important causes and we need that and unconscious bias and the Black Lives Matter. There's so much that we do need to change and fix. But there's also a big problem with boys' self-esteem. We talk about girls' self-esteem a lot yeah. and it seems to be, you know, we're driven by that and then boys are kind of, you know, they just buck your ideas up. Come on, dust it off. Man up. Which, yeah, man you know, up. Which is a terrible a, phrase, you know. Completely. Which... Yeah. So, we need to. And when I talk around the kind of the future of education about trying to understand behavior, you know, a big bit is, is, is we need to, you know, I kind of almost align it back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, you know, we, we got this bit of the middle about kind of love and belonging and self-esteem that we mustn't forget the boys because they are suffering from image issues, you know, about having the perfect body, about how they present yeah. themselves, about what's expected. And then you've got this tolerance or this moderation where, you know, when it's sort of just having a laugh, you've stepped it too far. 
it's enormously difficult. I've got a 16-year-old yeah. son. Oh, I've got four kids. So I've got an 18-year-old girl, a 16-year-old son, a 13-year-old daughter, and a nine-year-old son. And I see it now with my 16-year-old boy, the kind of the social influences. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think you're right. Sorry, uh, coming in there, there because I certainly when my... So I have two sons and a daughter. And when my first son was born, somebody gave me the Steve Bidolf book, Raising Raising Boys. I don't know if you know I've it. I've got that. And I've got a Raising yeah. Girls book, I think. Yeah, the Raising, the raising Girls. Yeah. Well. I remember one bit particularly where it said that, you know, it's a good thing for fathers to sort of play fight with their young boys because they need to learn how to stop. So don't not do it, was his point. Do it and teach them how to stop. And I think there's something similar there in in sort of educating boys is that, you know, it would be wrong, I think, to say that boys' schools shouldn't do lots of sport and lots of competitions and and these things. They absolutely should do them so that the boys learn how to lose. When's the right moment to stop and when's the right moment to change gear? So I think that's really important. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I suppose we're also with, with boys' education, it's very important that we do bring in girls at some point, and particularly yeah. in, their, in their teenage year where, you know, it's all around peers, it's all around belonging. Um, they're developing all those the hormones and the emotions and they're trying to kind of pull themselves away from establishments, parents and the control as they kind of go towards being an adult. What does your school do to encourage more collaboration involvement with girls' schools? So we have a number of partnerships. Again, uh, we're very fortunate we have a sister school within the Whitgift Foundation so we do a number of activities with them. We do quite a lot of the partnership work alongside them, and that works really well because it's a kind of non-threatening environment for both boys and the girls, not competing with each other. They're just working together, for example, in the old people's homes or some of our primary school work. Uh, we also involve both in some of our kind of learning enrichment activities, so uh, seminars and group work. And we quite like not just actually older boys, we're now looking at uh, moving down into the younger boys. So if they're doing a project, do it collaboratively with girls from one of those schools. We try and find activities which they can partner with. You know, you're absolutely right. They clearly need to learn to work with girls, with women. For example, we have Old Palace and Croydon High girls in our CCF. We're always looking for other things we can do. Old Palace has got a relatively new head and, and we're working on ideas to do more. Yeah, that's fantastic. Obviously, education curriculum are, are easy things to talk about. But, you know, when you start to look at the world once they finish, maybe if they are mm. going to go and do higher education, what additional kind of skills and, and work are you doing at the school to ensure the boys come out and are ready to kind of go on and take on the world? Well, we've given this a lot of thought. And I, I, don't, I think behind what you're saying there is maybe something around the sort of skills and qualities that we know instinctively, but we're told also are, are needed and, you know, things like teamwork, problem solving and so on and so forth. And again, in the last nine months, I've heard much more attention given publicly to qualities rather than qualifications. So as an IB World School, our curriculum is kind of formed by, I guess, the International Baccalaureate values, which are very much around teamwork, problem solving, independent work, finding solutions, uh, collaborating. And our junior curriculum is modelled on the IB. Uh, So all our boys do an independent research project. Uh, They all have to collaborate on projects. Uh, They do global citizenship. They do a sort of elementary theory of knowledge. 
So what we're trying to do is we're trying to prepare boys in our case, obviously, to be able to take on these kind of challenges. And certainly, although it's only about a third, just under a third of our boys who actually do the International Baccalaureate, we hope the values, teamwork, collaboration, problem-solving values are ones that they've worked with through their time here. I mean, the, the idea is one of those misunderstood, I think, educational models. And it's great that you're a world school and there's a number of the UK independent schools that have gone down that, that route. What should we be doing more of to educate people and parents and children about the benefits of the IB? Well, you know, you touch on something which we're thinking about a lot at the moment at school. I mean, I think there are some myths around the IB. One is that it's only for very clever people. That's inevitable when you kind of look at A-levels. Most people do three A-levels, very few people do four, but most people do three subjects and the IB, you have to do six. So it already sounds harder. And uh, in the IB, you also have to do an independent project. You also have to do a sort of service activity. You also have to do theory of knowledge. It sounds as if you can only do it if you're super bright and super organized. I would say that's to misunderstand it. The IB is not really a set of subjects. It's a set of values. It's a way of learning. Some of these subjects, particularly at standard level, they're really only kind of GCSE level. The point is you keep doing lots of stuff. And I suppose the other big myth about the IB is because in the UK, we have this kind of deep rooted and and really damaging, I think, obsession with the only decent mark is a top mark. You know, so the only decent A level is an A star and an A is not quite so good and a B is really not anything like as good. And so people think the only good IB score is 45 out of 45 or 40 plus. Actually, 30 points out of 45 is a really good IB score, will get you into most universities. And when our IB average is 40, 30 is really, really achievable, almost all candidates. So I think we make it sound too difficult. We make it sound as if in order to do it successfully, you've got to get 45 points. And that's just not true. Yeah. So it's busting this around, again, the academic achievements and the benchmark you need to get. Um, I think a lot of that can come through stories. You've got to share what you're doing so people can see inside the school. Why is diversity important? Are we sort of bending because that's the way the media and the world is sort of pushing us and prodding us? Or is it really important? Obviously, it is incredibly important. There's so much going on, isn't there, at the moment in terms of sort of media, Black Lives Matter and and all kinds of movements. You know, in a world, I think the last nine months have really heightened this, in a world of fear and suspicion, the need for understanding of a variety of viewpoints is incredibly high. That's what we're talking about here is, you know, we talk about diversity and inclusion and obviously diversity is what you are or aren't. Inclusion is what you do with that. So you could be a diverse community, but still be, you know, riven by divisions and not really understand each other. So inclusion, obviously, is what one is trying to do in terms of making sure value is given equally across the piece. So, you know, in a sense, it seems to me to be so obvious that it's important that the various movements interesting and important as they are in their different ways are a kind of distraction. It is simply important, always has been, to see the world from as many different perspectives as you can and yeah. to value those perspectives. Yeah, well, it needs to be representative of society. What does Whitgift do to attract this diverse community? And do you find it difficult to get that balance right because of the local market that maybe you're recruiting into? The local market at South London makes it relatively easy for us to attract a diverse pupil community. And we might come on to staff uh, a little bit in a minute. We're very fortunate we have a very significant ability to offer fee discounts, so bursaries. So we genuinely are able to attract 
a diverse social ethnic community. You know, Whitgift, I always say, doesn't feel like a grand public school. It's not a grand public school. It feels very much like South London. Got a really diverse mix of boys ethnically, socially. We're lucky not in where we are, the geography. And the other thing is in terms of the boy community is that I get a lot of comments from, if you like, the more traditional, more middle class, white middle class, if you want to put it like that, parents, they like the fact that the community in which their son is going to be educated is very reflective of society as a whole and very diverse. So attracting a boy community that's diverse, relatively easy for us, and we really, really value it. It is trickier with staff. I mean, we may come on to that later, I think, for traditional and, and historic reasons. Yeah. So, I mean, we're recruiting and getting the right diverse mix. What proportion of your enrollment is through that bursaries and support for those kind of boys that maybe can't afford it, maybe never see that they could even apply? How do you go about offering that? At the moment, we're working hard on getting into primary schools a bit more actively, as opposed to just sort of sitting here and waiting for people to apply. So we would give the equivalent in our 11 plus intake, something like 20 to 25 bursary places. So that's, you know, most fees covered or all of the fees covered. It's not anything like as many as we would like to. That's amongst an intake of about 120. And they will, they're, they're all financially assessed through, through the foundation. Um, and as I say, we're working now to try and make sure that we get a better message to parents through primary schools to how they might make that possible. One of the things about bursaries in schools is we all make them sound fantastic. You know, so independent schools talking about bursaries and they start talking about how many millions of pounds they, they give away in bursaries. But somebody once said to me, and I think this is true, that the act of going through a bursary application already implies a certain level of privilege. The people who can find out about a bursary, fill in the application form, go to the school, get their son in for the exam, you know, they haven't got nothing to be able even to do that. That's not to say we shouldn't help those people. We absolutely should. But there's another piece of work finding the, in our case, boys much younger than 11 for whom this could be a really, really life transforming experience and helping the family through the primary school probably. Yeah. And that's much more difficult. But I think that that is the more important. You're absolutely right. You know, how, how do you go that one step further? You know, naturally, parents won't want to do it because they feel embarrassed or they feel shy or maybe they don't even know about it. They don't want to be disappointed by going through a process and then being let down again because yeah, they're always yeah. let down. So yeah, you know, you talk about outreach. There's a partnership piece, but also there is an outreach piece and there's, there's a messaging piece to go, you know, how do you go finding that? Because there are so many untapped, amazing young men and women who have that potential, but just yeah. not the great start. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah. that's the piece that independent schools should be able to give back. Yeah, you know, we're going through this process at the moment is the 2021 admissions. You know, we're looking at a lot of applicants. We won't be able to help with the fees with all of the people we would like to. So there's already some decisions to be made. And sometimes we'll be looking at two profiles. Here's a boy who has done very well coming from a very difficult background. Do we help them more than somebody who's done a little bit better, but clearly is going to be fine wherever they go. These are judgments we won't always get right, but you know we need to make in good faith and try and do the best we can. Like all independent schools, we're trying to raise more money to do more of this kind of work. And it's in the partnership work that we can help more people than in the bursaries piece. Because obviously, by definition, each bursary boy we have in the school is great for that boy, but it's only one boy. Um, I suppose the big picture as well that is often forgotten is that there is a entry process to, to identify and get these boys in on a bursary, yeah. but it doesn't stop there. It's not a kind of a, right, we filled our quota. There's a huge amount of work to be done partially 
pastorally, support-wise, yep. because you know that boy that's coming into a very privileged environment will not have that reflected at home. What no. does the school do to support them throughout the life of that? Very close sort of pastoral contact. And what we've changed in the last few years is we've made it much more explicit about who is getting fee help. And I think traditionally, most schools would have said, you know, probably only the head knows which are the pupils in the school who are getting, you know, fee help. And, and we've, we've said in the last couple of years, that's nonsensical. You know, the tutor needs to know, the head of year needs to know, the sort of pastoral team needs to know, there may be some more help needed. We have meetings with the parents uh, right at the beginning and try and make sure that they've got all their questions answered and we pair them also with other parents who've been through and sort of got to an understanding of how it all works the other really interesting thing i think it's interesting is that and i don't know how this uh, this is in other schools but we're pretty explicit with our boys who are on um significant fee concessions here i always meet individually with the new boys and their parents and i say look first of all you know it's fantastic you're here well done you know you won't be marked out for special treatment in any way you're not different to any of the other boys you're uh, normal we're gifting like everybody else we're here for you and we're here to help you and you know don't hesitate to ask but i also say here's the deal don't forget this because part of the deal is you need to learn all the Whitgiftians are expected to give back themselves. What that looks like, I don't know. It might be your expertise or your time or your, you know, helping other people. It might be money. The deal is you come here to learn how to also be a giver back. I think that's an important message for all education. It's, it's, mm. it's teaching everybody to feel in keeping with service. You know, there's, there's yeah. an element of service to give back to the environment, the schools, the, the organisations that you've been yeah, part of absolutely. and be able to yeah. give back. So, I mean, the final kind of killer question for you around diversity is just around the leadership and you talked about teachers yeah. early. You know, just having a look that you've got set up is that you've got 27 people in your leadership team, 21 of them are white men and four are women. Are you doing enough to champion diversity? Well, you know, you kind of answered the question in your own. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a challenge. And, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of my leadership team. Interestingly, if you look at the governing body is a little bit more representative of us in terms of sort of ethnic diversity. But it is true. We want to attract more people from different ethnic backgrounds into school leadership. We're starting some projects to see how we can get more people into the profession from ethnic minorities. One of our governors is also a governor of Goldsmiths University who do some fantastic work there. So the challenge, as I indicated earlier, is to get the staff body and particularly the leadership body to be more representative. And, and, and you know, we're not there yet. A lot of it's driven by the, the market. And we know that, you know, yeah. pe people going into the education, the teaching profession is going down and it's predicted to keep going down. Yet the, the numbers that, of children that need educating is going up. So we're at this kind of period where there's real problem. The numbers don't stack up. Yeah. And then yeah. actually then attracting the right ones so you can be diverse is difficult. And sometimes you can't get it right because actually you haven't got the, the market there. Uh, Chris, thanks ever so much for taking the time to chat. I've thoroughly enjoyed. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it too. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.